All right, good morning. Hi, great to see you. If we've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm a part of the team here. We're really glad you're here. Like Mark said, today's a great, great day. We're starting a brand new series called Joy. Very simple, very straightforward, easy. Just joy with an exclamation mark. So when you invite your friends, it can't be like, hey, this series joy. It's got to be like, joy, come to joy, right? It's a big exclamation mark. Uh, resilient delight for re- weary days. And uh, we can relate. We've had some weary days. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm just talking about life. Life has a tendency to beat us up. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to journey deeply into joy. We're actually going to take a journey past shallow, what I would consider shallow renderings of joy, sort of these cultural versions of joy that always leave us lacking and dissatisfied. And we'll get more into that here in a moment. But to begin, I want to point out this beautiful art piece that is next to me up here on stage. And I think you can see it there on the screen. This is a piece uh, by our own Claire Russell, who is here. She's a college student. Yes, give it up for Claire. Beautiful piece. Um, College student and the Russells are beloved part of uh, the Westgate family. And um, Claire created this really beautiful piece. And I would encourage you after the service, come up and take a look closer. We'll put it up here front um, on the the platform here. But I want to read for you uh, her description of this piece because it's actually going to launch us into this series in a really profound way. This piece is called Restoring Delight. And this is Claire's description of the significance of this piece. She writes this. Humanity, represented by the circles, surrounds itself with worldly negativities. The redundant pattern of sin distorts and confuses our identity. We are stuck, I love these these words, we are stuck in that blank world of emptiness and sin. As much as we may try to change ourselves and our surroundings, We cannot color our lives with joy on our own. The only source of true joy, God, comforts us and brings us back to our original state of eternal joy and praise. I want to read one line again, and this will launch us into why we're spending the next month together exploring joy. As much as we may try to change ourselves and our surroundings, we cannot color our lives with joy on our own. I mean, I, I don't know if you're like me, but if you are like me, and my guess is that you are like me in some way, you can relate. Because you and I have been on a futile search for joy. That's, in many ways, it's like, you know, the American ideal, the pursuit of happiness, right? This is sort of the driving force behind all of Western culture in many ways. And the disappointment that we face, and and I know, without even knowing your story, I know that you are familiar with disappointment because it is common to human experience. The disappointment we so often experience in our pursuit of joy comes because we fail to recognize this profound truth that Claire has just revealed to us. That we cannot actually color our lives with joy on our own. That's a misunderstanding of joy. But it is a misunderstanding of joy that is perpetuated by culture. 
Popular culture all around us tells us that joy is something we are supposed to chase. In the late 1990s, the British psychologist Michael Isink, he developed a phrase that he called the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic is the adjective of the noun hedonism. And um, if you know what hedonism is, simply put, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. And so this British psychologist, Michael Isink, he basically said, the human tendency is to live life on a pleasure treadmill. In other words, we find ourselves most often running in place, chasing after pleasure, believing that the pleasure is joy. We find ourselves constantly moving and never arriving. Our feet are chasing beneath us, and yet we find ourselves going nowhere. It's a treadmill. There's this whole concept, the language we use in popular culture, in fact, um, reveals this myth to us, right? Uh, there's this myth um, that the pastor Mark Batterson, he's a pastor out in Washington, D.C., he calls it the myth of when and then. And the myth goes like this. When I have, fill in the blank with whatever you want, then I will experience real joy. When I achieve, fill in the blank with whatever you want to achieve, then I will experience real joy. When the pandemic is over, then I will experience real joy. Right? This is how we live. But let me burst your bubble. The reality is, even though COVID is like the thing hovering over us, and we kind of can see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel now, which is really wonderful, and there's a part of us that believes like, oh, the pandemic's almost over. I'm going to be so joyful once this is over. Here's the deal. This is me bursting your bubble. Most of us were not all that joyful before COVID. <laughs> and chances are, unless something significant changes, not circumstantially, but inside of us, we're not gonna be all that joyful after the pandemic either. That's a myth. It's the when and then myth. When this happens, then I'll experience joy. And culture at large sells us this myth in droves, like in bulk, like Costco sells this myth, right? Here's what I mean. Think about the language we use in popular culture to, de to describe joy. Um, my wife, first of all, some of you are going to hate me for this, and this is not a blanket critique. My wife is a huge fan of Marie Kondo, right? I don't know if you guys know, like the Kondo method. She, she, okay, there we go. We've got some fans, some Marie fans. I think she's wonderful in many ways. If you don't know Marie Kondo, she's this like four foot nothing Japanese megastar that has built a global multi-million dollar global empire on um, a, a whole philosophy behind tidying up your home and organizing your space. She's got multiple Netflix shows. She's got her own, again, a global multi-million dollar company. And her entire philosophy is summarized in one key phrase, what sparks joy? That's the question you're supposed to ask. You're supposed to tidy up your home and you find a piece of Tupperware that you haven't used in years or a pair of old socks or an old t-shirt or some leggings. And every time Marie Kondo tells us you are to ask the question, does this spark joy? And if that old piece of Tupperware does not spark joy, throw it away. 
If those leggings do not spark joy, those socks, that shirt, whatever, if they do not spark joy, throw it away. This is the concept, the myth of joy as a spark. The problem is, now my wife would argue with you, Marie Kondo's like awesome and she's changed our home in significant ways. So not a blanket critique of Marie Kondo. If you're a disciple of Marie Kondo, you should probably follow Jesus first and then Marie Kondo, but whatever, that's another conversation. Okay, the problem here is that we have applied this misunderstanding of joy as a spark to all sorts of things. This is why when marriages disintegrate, you will often hear spouses say of one another, well, you know what, the spark is gone. Have you heard this? The spark is gone. I don't love you anymore because the spark is gone. And when the spark is gone, we discard marriages the way we discard old underwear. Because joy is a spark. Here's the problem. If joy is a spark, then you will never, ever experience deep, rich, timeless, consistent joy. Because sparks are by their nature temporary. They're ephemeral. That's the nature of sparks. They're here, they, they shine bright for a moment, and then they're gone. This is why we live, find ourselves living on the hedonic treadmill, chasing sparks. We constantly run and never arrive because those sparks of pleasure disguised as joy always disappoint us. So the question for us as we begin this journey through joy, if joy is not a spark, then what is joy? What is joy? First, in what you and I often call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, what some might call the First Testament, there are several Hebrew words translated into the English word joy. The most common is a Hebrew word, simha. And the Hebrew word simha, which is found almost a hundred times in um, the Hebrew scriptures, it's a word that most commonly refers to a person or people's state of being when they are in close fellowship with or deeply connected to God. Simha is a word that describes not circumstances, but proximity. Simha, joy, in the Old Testament, describes a person or people's state of being when they are in close proximity to God. This is why we read in places like Psalm 16, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In other words, in the Bible, the location of joy is not a mystery. It's not elusive. It is abundantly clear. When we ask the question, where can I find joy? The Bible is so clear, in God, in the presence of God, there is joy. The word simha also describes God's posture toward us. God's posture, his, his approach to his people and to creation itself. This is why we read in Psalm 104, may the Lord rejoice, simha, in his works. Or Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
You ever seen like a young parent sing with their newborn child? Um, this is something I used to do when we had our children. Like I would, you know, kind of try to rock them to sleep and I would just sing these little lullabies to them. And there was a part of me, like I didn't even know why I was singing. It just felt like the right thing to do. But as I was singing, it just felt like so much, so very much the right thing to do. There's a way in which we express our love to another with singing um, in ways that the spoken word alone cannot do. Just think about that imagery. That is, that is God's posture toward you. No matter what you've done, no matter what shame or guilt you bring into this room, no matter what deep, dark thing is boiling up inside of you, in spite of all of your doubts and your confusion, all of your wonderings and wanderings about faith, in the midst of all of that, just know there is a God who loves you enough that he rejoices over you and he sings over you like a parent to a child that he loves. Okay, so the word simha, joy, it means what um, people feel and experience when they are in close proximity to God and it is God's posture toward his people. Now, when we go to the New Testament, the word for joy is most commonly the Greek word hurrah. And hurrah is found almost 60 times throughout the New Testament. And primarily the word hurrah, joy in the Greek, uh, it means an internal attribute of the Christian as a, as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. This is why we read that word hurrah in Galatians 5.22 when Paul lists the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit of God works inside of us, what is the fruit that it bears in our lives? Joy is one of them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this sort of joy, hurrah, that the Spirit, not circumstances, but the Spirit of God embeds within us, it is not contingent upon circumstances, but instead it is a steadiness within built upon the goodness of God, and it prevails in the midst of even suffering. Again, this sort of joy is not circumstantial. It is the work of the, of the Spirit of God inside of you. This is why in Colossians 1, Paul writes, Now I rejoice, hurrah, in what I am suffering for you. Or Hebrews 12, this famous verse about Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy, hurrah, set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. I mean, these verses sound paradoxical. They sound like nothing connected to joy, really, in terms of like the popular uh, pop culture renderings of joy. These are not sparks. This sounds really hard and difficult. Suffering, the cross. And yet that, even in those circumstances, there is joy, hurrah, a sort of spirit-birthed uh, joy within. And so to summarize to answer the question, if joy is not a spark the way culture tells us it is, then what is joy? Biblically speaking, joy is our state of being when we are connected to God. And it is God's posture toward his people, toward you and me. Joy is a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. 
And it is an inner steadiness built upon the goodness of God, not on circumstances. This is nothing like pop culture's version of joy. Culture tells us, again, the myth of when and then. Culture tells us that joy is something you will experience when, fill in the blank, with whatever product culture is trying to sell you. Listen, make no mistake. This is the equation. Every algorithm that wants your money fits into this equation. You want real joy? Then when you have whatever, you'll have real joy. When and then. But biblically speaking, joy is none of that. Joy is whatever it is we experience when we live in close proximity to God, It is God's unfailing posture toward us as his people. It is the result not of circumstances or achievements or accumulation, but rather joy is the work of the spirit within us. And ultimately joy is an inner steadiness built upon the goodness of God, not on circumstances, not on that which you can earn or achieve or attain. Our working definition for joy throughout the series comes from Dallas Willard, who sort of summarizes these points beautifully in The Allure of Gentleness. He says, joy is not a passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. Joy is not, let me paraphrase him for a second. Joy is not a spark of pleasure. It is an unending, consistent sense of steadiness, well-being, that is full of hope, not because of circumstances, but because we know that God is good. That's joy. Now, let's spend just a moment talking about God and joy. Because even if we understand all of this, the truth is there's a sort of um, underlying misunderstanding that many of us as as Christians have. When we think about joy, even Christian joy or biblical joy, we often think about joy as some sort of experience or feeling that is detached from God himself. But as we've seen in some of the verses we've already explored, God is a God of joy and joy actually comes from God. We'll see that again later in the teaching. The problem is when you and I think about God, we don't really we think about lots of other attributes. Like when I think about God or when I think about Jesus, I think of like love or holiness or justice. Joy, like real exuberant joy is like way down on the bottom of the list for me. Let me, let me show you an example. I want to show you several really famous paintings of Jesus over the years. These are uh, um, a series of really popular, really famous paintings of Jesus throughout Christian church history. Some of them more modern, some of them older. Now, they are all very different and distinct depictions of Jesus. But I want you to notice a common theme in every painting. Jesus looks uber serious. In almost every painting you've ever seen of Jesus, he looks super serious. Now, this isn't wrong, you guys. 
The scriptures are very clear that pain and seriousness and um, grief and sorrow, these were very real parts of Jesus's life and ministry. Absolutely. So these paintings are not wrong. They're just incomplete. And I would suggest they are imbalanced. Like every painting you've ever seen of Jesus, therefore, the Jesus you see in your mind's eye always looks like he's waiting at the DMV. Like every Jesus painting is Jesus holding a ticket that says E46, and then he looks up and it's like on C12. He's like, ugh. And then that's Jesus. That's the Jesus they paint. Again, not wrong, just incomplete and imbalanced. There's this writer and theologian named Elton Trueblood, and several years ago, several decades ago now, he wrote a book called The Humor of Christ. And in the book, he's a theologian and a linguist and culturalist. He understands the culture of the first century Judeo-Christian world, Judeo world. And um, he essentially takes the gospel stories and he does like heavy duty theological hermeneutical work. And he reveals to us that there is so much humor and laughter and even like positive sarcasm in the gospel stories that you and I miss because of the translation. Like, have you ever tried to tell a joke to someone who's like a foreign exchange student from like another country? And you know the joke in English and the joke is couched in American culture. And you try to tell the joke to this person who's from another country, speaks another language in another part of the world. And you think it's the funniest joke in the world. And you tell this person the joke and like they have no idea what you're talking about. You ever experienced this? Okay, you can at least imagine experiencing it, right? Why? Because jokes and humor is one of the most culturally nuanced things in all of human experience. Humor is one of the first things to be lost in translation. I'm not, that's not conjecture. I'm not making that up. Linguists and historians will tell you that. That humor is one of the most difficult things to translate across languages and cultures. Now, because of that, Elton Trueblood argues that modern Western minds completely miss the humor and the joy and the exuberance that is found in the gospel stories. In fact, this little book, the, the Humor of Christ by Elton Trueblood, he goes story after story, parable after parable, and he reveals how in the original language and in the original context, so many of Jesus' stories and parables were like ridiculously absurd. And he argues that it would have been difficult back then to hear Jesus tell these stories the way he told them and not laugh. Elton Trueblood argues that Jesus himself was probably laughing just as much as he was crying. Again, Willard is helpful here. Willard says that one of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. And if it is true that anyone who has seen Jesus has seen God the Father, as we read in John 14, then this means that God himself is abundantly joyful. Now, joy is not just laughter. It's not just humor, but it isn't not that either. Make sense? Christians so often think that Christian joy is like this painstaking, grit your teeth, bear your cross and hate it, but have joy kind of thing. On one hand, it is. But 
when we can journey across to the far side of the pain and the struggle, what you discover is that joy will eventually and inevitably carry you to a place of actual exuberant happiness. This is uh, found um, in like the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, uh, when Jesus says, blessed are, and then he says all these different things. You guys know this? The word blessed or blessed is the Greek word makarios, and the best translation is happy. Jesus actually says, happy are the peacemakers. Happy are on and on, those who mourn. And so um, we'll save that further conversation for another teaching in this series. But I just, I want us to understand joy is like much bigger than just a grit your teeth, carry your cross sort of thing. There is real joyful emotion that comes not in spite of the pain, but even in the midst of it. Willard says this, that we should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. This is why throughout the scriptures, joy is made complete by God and experienced most fully in his presence. Psalm 21, we read that you, God, make him glad with the joy of your presence. John 16, Jesus says, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Romans 15, Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. The pastor and writer John Ortberg says that joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. And if joy is God's basic character, then those made in his image, you and I, followers of Jesus, it means that joy must somehow become our basic character. Not just when circumstances are all lining up in our favor, but at all times. Remember, joy is not contingent upon circumstances. It is contingent upon closeness to God, the work of the Spirit within us, and God's goodness, which is always true and never fails. This is why in James chapter 1, the writer tells us, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That phrase, count it all, is actually in the original language just one Greek word. It's the Greek word hageomai. The Greek word hageomai is actually a mathematical word. Count it all is actually a great translation here. That's what the word means. It means do the math. My friend John Mark Comer puts it this way, that count it all joy means to do the math. You will realize the result of trials is often a net profit. We gain more than we lose. Namely, the growth of a deeper and wider and stronger soul, a character that will last past this life and into the life to come. James is saying, do the mental spreadsheet. There's more profit than loss, and the logical emotion is joy. In the coming weeks, we'll get more into the details of how this works. Next Sunday, we'll talk about joy and suffering. 
Sunday after that, we'll talk specifically about how comparison, particularly in the digital age, comparison robs us of joy. In the final week of the series, we'll explore how joy can confront the cynicism that pervades our lives and our society today. So we're going to get, we're going to deep dive into all of these thoughts, these trials of various kinds. How can we have joy? How can we count it all joy? How can we do the math and realize that in the big picture of things, in the midst of all that is both great and difficult and everything in between, how do we count it all joy? How does that work? That's what we're going to get into in the coming weeks. So I hope you'll join us. But for now, I want to encourage and challenge us with this. That no matter what it is we're going through, whether you're journeying through the peaks of life or you find yourself deep in the dark valleys or you're just kind of consistently walking through the steady plateau, joy is more accessible and possible than you can imagine. I'm gonna show you a photo of um, two of my closest friends. These are my friends Stan and Noel. Um, and I've known them for almost 20 years. When Jenny and I were married, Stan was my best man and Noel was one of her bridesmaids. I mean, these are the sorts of friends. Some of you have friends like these. These are the sorts of friends I can go months and months without seeing. And then when Jenny and I are with them over a good meal or a cup of coffee, it feels like we can just pick up right where we left off. You know what I'm saying? You have friends like that? That's them to me. Stan and Noel are those types of friends. And one of the reasons why we're so close is not because everything's always been great in our lives. It's because we have actually journeyed through really deep, dark valleys together. In fact, several years ago, almost a decade ago, in fact, um, Stan and Noel and then Jenny and I were both starting, we were trying to start families at the same time. We didn't have any kids at the time, and so we both wanted to start families. And both of us, as we were trying to start a family, uh, we, um, we began to journey together through that deep, dark valley called infertility. Some of you are familiar with that valley. Trying to have kids but not un being unable to have kids becomes like this dark cloud that just hovers over you. And so we journeyed there together for several years. We wept with one another. We held each other. And then, several years into that journey, um, by God's grace, Jenny got pregnant. And nine months later, she gave birth to our little girl. And then three years later, after several more visits to clinics and specialists, Jenny got pregnant again with our son. And now, Jenny and I have these two young little children who are the light of our lives. But Stan and Noel, to this very day, are still traversing that deep, dark valley of infertility. It's really interesting because even through their pain and disappointment, Stan and Noel are two of the most joyful people I know. They exude a sort of joy that is hard for me to explain with words. I mean, Jenny and I have sat with them in tears and in silence at that strange intersection where grief and gladness meet. 
We laugh more with Stan and Noel than we do with just about anybody else in our lives. And there's a sweetness that they have toward our own children that feels like family. They do this, all of this, all of this joy they exude toward us and toward our kids comes from a place of pain. It's a paradox, I know, but you just, if you experience it, if you know them, you know what I'm talking about. And when Jenny and I were struggling with infertility, honestly, you guys, I say this as a confession, there was no joy in my life. All I could do at that se- in that season of my life, all I could do was compare and despair. I would just compare the sadness of our situation to the highlights of everybody else's social media feed and just find myself in despair. Zero joy. And my guess is that on their worst days, Stan and Noel probably do the same. But here's what I know. The underpinning of their life is not despair. It's not comparison. It's joy. The underpinning of their life is a joy that is not based on their circumstances because their circumstances tell them that they should have no joy. But the underpinning of their life, even in the valley, is joy not because of anything happening or not happening in their life, but because they rely completely and solely on a God who rejoices over them. And they open-handedly receive that joy. The crazy thing is they then give that joy to others, to people like me. Some of you know that famous verse, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, where the prophet Nehemiah tells the people, hey, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know this verse? Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That word your is plural. In Texan, the way Steve Clifford would say it, is the joy of the Lord is y'all's strength. That's what the verse says. Listen, this series that we are journeying through starting today is not an invitation for you to leave your pain and your grief at the door and walk in here and slap on a happy Christian face. This series on joy is not an invitation to just bring with you the sparks of pleasure that culture sells us and masquerades as joy. This series is an invitation for you to bring all of it, your grief, your trials, your pain, your struggle, your your exuberance, your excitement, your celebration, and everything in between. And the reason this room and this community and everyone watching online and our church as a whole, the reason there is room enough to carry all of the weight of both your hurt and your highlights, both your grief and your gladness, is because joy is not contingent upon the circumstances. We do not rejoice because things are going well. We rejoice because God is good. We don't rejoice because you got that job or you got the raise or you found that mate or you had a kid or you bought the house or you whatever. We rejoice because God is good and God is good regardless of whether you fill in the blank with whatever culture tells you you need to be joyful. 
God has always been good. He is good today and he will always be good. He is good with you in the peaks. He is good with you in the valleys. He is good on those long, steady, mundane plateaus of life. God never ceases to be good. And though we cannot always see his goodness in real time, real joy comes when we stop chasing the sparks and lean into the goodness of God now and forever. And when we do, collectively together, his joy becomes our strength. So for those of us here today with broken hearts and tired hands, may the joy of the Lord be our strength. For those of us here today with weary minds and anxious souls, may the joy of the Lord be our strength. For those of us here today ashamed of the past or fearful of the future, may the joy of the Lord be our strength. And just as Claire reminded us, we cannot color our lives with joy on our own. And so may the God of all joy color each of our lives with his joy, which becomes our strength. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a good and joyful God and that in you there is true, real, meaningful joy, the sort of joy that never runs out, never fades, never dries up, and we pray that in the midst of all that is represented in this room, all of the pain, all of the celebration, all of the highs, all of the lows, and everything in between, we pray that you would give us now collectively a sense, a taste of that incredible joy we have in you, the hope that we have in your goodness and in nothing else. Give ourselves now, today, over to that joy. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.